0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: And I pray, Father, that you would use your word here to stir up your people, to stir us up to hope, courage, and to action. Father, do that with Your Word, I pray. Give life to my feeble words, that Your strong Word might shine and might change us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the beginning of the book of Joshua, the people of God stand poised, on the east bank of the Jordan River, just about to enter into the promised land. And in chapter 1 there, God speaks to Joshua and assures him and commands him. And what he says to him teaches us some things about how God works in his world here to bring about his purposes. God says to Joshua, Go and take that land, and every place that you will place the sole of your foot, I have promised to Moses. Notice how those words span time. Every place that you will put the sole of your foot. You haven't done it yet, but they're they're about to. And where you will put your foot, you're going to find that I have in the past promised that to Moses. It's the promised land. That I told Moses I was going to give to his people, so get up and go get it. It's an interesting mix of past promise with a future activity that will find it fulfilled. And it's illustrated almost immediately as the people then in in the subsequent chapters move up to the Jordan River. He tells them the Jordan River is running at flood stage, the barrier that keeps them out of the promised land. And he says to them, the priests, when they put the foot, their feet, the soles of their feet into the very edge of the water, then I will part the waters. I'll stop up the Jordan River and the people will be able to cross over. Not before, only when they put their feet in. And so they believe him and they do that. And they walk and they put the the edge of into their feet into the edge of the water, and then he stops up the river and parts it, and they come in and take possession of the promised land. God's promised end brought to pass only as his people hear him. Obey Him and act. His promise realized when people respond. That dynamic is what we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 27. Acts 27 is the story of Paul's journey towards Rome. And it follows, last week we saw Paul's fifth and final trial before King Agrippa, his last time in Caesarea in Palestine. We've been seeing over the number of the last weeks that he's been on trial after trial after trial, arguing for his innocence, arguing for the gospel, and constantly being proclaimed not worthy of being punished. Innocent, having done nothing wrong again and again. Last week before Agrippa, he, he did the same thing, and he argued for the truth of the gospel, and he said, the reason that I'm here on trial is that this long ago made promise I believe it's actually happened. Long ago, God made a promise to shine light into this dark world. And I'm saying it's happened because I met that light on the road to Damascus Jesus. And so our job, our response to that was to not just reject the light and slide back into the darkness, but to embrace the light, to to step into it. If God has shown into the world we are to step into the light, embrace it, and follow it with all of our might. That was last week. Agrippa heard it. Agrippa sidestepped it. But did pronounce, he's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. If he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we could have let him go. But he has appealed to Caesar, and so he's going to go to Rome. That's this chapter. Chapter 27. Let me read the text, read the whole of the chapter, and then we'll work back through and look at some of the the main details. There are a lot of details here, but we'll just look at the top ones. Beginning in chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramatium which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia, there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. And we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon, and coasting along it with great difficulty, we came to a place called Fairhavens, near which was the city of Lacea. Since much time had passed... And the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they'd been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, Having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair of your head is to perish from any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship. "'throwing out the wheat into the sea. "'Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, "'but they noticed a bay with a beach "'on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. "'So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, "'at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, "'then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. "'But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground.' The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf, and the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. There's an incredible amount of action and detail in this passage. Lots of things to talk about, but I'm only going to mention, as I said, some of the most important highlights. It's told to us by Luke. Notice the first person, we. He was there and he saw all this. This actually happened. Just like he records it. He's traveling along, escorting Paul who, because Paul's a Roman citizen and still uncondemned, he's separated from the rest of the prisoners and probably afforded a little more comfort and a little more respect by the centurion. So they put them all on board the ship, and as was customary, they're just kind of hopping ships to move across the Mediterranean. The first ship they pick is going to pass along the coast, and they have to go wherever the ship's going, and so they're moving along the coast of southern Turkey until they eventually find a ship that's headed from Egypt over to Italy, taking grain had to run north, and then it would go to the west. And so they hop on board that ship and head out. But there's been foreshadowing throughout several of these verses indicating that this has been hard sailing. The weather has been consistently against them. And so, by verse nine, much time has passed and the ship's in a predicament. Because of the technology at this time, the Mediterranean Sea was only open to sailing during certain months, the summer, And then if you were kind of prone to risk on the shoulder seasons of spring and fall, but winter was entirely too storm-laden and dangerous. So nobody sailed in the winter. And winter began in early November. And seeing that the fast has already passed, it's now mid-October. And so they're very deep into the shoulder season and very close to the no-sailing season. So there's no chance the ship is now going to make Italy. They're going to have to winter somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea. And there's not that many options. They have a few options on Crete. They're looking them over, and there's some debate, and Paul has some words to say. He has some advice to give. And there's no indication that he has any like special divine insight. It's just that he's done this before. If you look through the rest of the New Testament, you realize that Paul's already had about 3,500 miles sailing on the Mediterranean, which is a lot of sailing for a non-sailor. And he's already been shipwrecked once before, too. And so he's done this before, and he realizes that there's a lot of danger involved here. My advice would be to stay right here. But the centurion sides with the actual owner of the ship, and they decide to press their luck, hoping by some chance or another that they might reach Phoenix. And so they press on. And sure enough, verse 14, they encounter the reason that you don't sail during this time of the year a tempestuous wind, a a hurricane-force wind blows down from the northeast off of the island and strikes the ship. And they can't stand against it, and they can't make port, and so they're just blown away from the island, past a little bitty outlying island, into the vast open sea in the middle of basically a hurricane. They're in, in serious trouble. It's hard for us, at least hard for me, to imagine this situation. Maybe if you're a sailor, you've been in something like this, but I have never been in anything like this. Day after day of desperate storm. It says, no small tempest lay on us, verse 20. When all you can do, and I mean all that you can do has already been done. You've, you've wrapped the ship up tight to keep it from breaking apart. You've battened down the hatches, and all you can do is sit there and be battered by the storm. day. After day, after day, they are violently storm-tossed, verse 18. No sun and no stars for days. Other written descriptions of similar situations describe the sense of hopelessness that sets in. When you can't see the sun and you can't see the stars, the only way that sailors of this day had of knowing where they were and being able to navigate is gone. You're just lost in emptiness. Emptiness. It's hard to imagine the psychological pressure. If you, if you were to sit in a perfectly white room day after day after day after day, you begin to lose perspective. You can't, you can't tell where things are. Depth perception begins to fade. When you're on the open sea with no light for weeks, that's what happens. It begins to play tricks with your mind. And furthermore, the boat's leaking. Over time, the hole begins to leak, and it's starting to fill with water. And And it just goes on and on and on. And the terror, though, eventually gives way to just simple, utter hopelessness as you await the inevitable end. One way or another, this ends poorly. Maybe the ship just sinks. It just fills up with water and sinks. Or on the crest of a huge wave, as it comes crashing down, all the water and the cargo shifts, and it capsizes. Or maybe the timbers that are constantly groaning and creaking and groaning all the time. They just, in a grand zipper-like crack, shatter, and the boat comes apart all of a sudden. You just know, eventually one of those things is going to happen. Verse 20. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Finally. Now, perhaps, there will be an opportunity to listen to a message of hope. At this point in the story, after they've finally given up everything. All hope has been abandoned. At that point, Paul stands up amongst the men and says, you should have listened to me when I said don't sail. Which I don't think we should read as a ha-ha, told you so. Not that Paul couldn't say something like that. Paul's human, he could be a sinner, he's afraid here too. But because he knows that he's about to say a few more sentences, That has a message that he wants people to listen to and rubbing their noses in their air is probably not the best way to make them inclined to listen. I think rather he's saying something like, you know, the last time I spoke to you, remember, you went against that and turned to your own wisdom and look around. This is what's happened. I've got another message. Let's try this again. Take heart. Take heart. Take heart. You're not going to die. Are you kidding me? Look around. We're going to die. No, you're not going to die. We're going to lose the ship, but you're not going to die. How is that? There is nothing out here for hundreds of miles. You're not going to die. We're going to lose the ship. And the reason I know that is because my God appeared to me tonight and told, and He said that I'm going to go to Rome and stand before Caesar. And in fact, He has given to me... You know, that probably Paul had been praying for them. He has given to me the lives of every single one of you. But we are going to lose the ship. We must run aground on some island somewhere. There are two statements of we must. You must go to Rome. We must run aground. It's the statements of divine necessity. We've talked about this before. Not just that it's going to happen, but it must happen. In the plan of God, this is the way it will be. We must Run aground. You must stand before Caesar. Paul says that to them and then says, So take heart, urging them again to be encouraged. And then the narration continues. They're moving along through the Adriatic Sea, and incidentally, the use of the Adriatic Sea there fits perfectly how they use that term then, not how we use it now. We have a more narrow body of water, but they use it to describe this whole area of the Mediterranean that they're moving through. They're moving through the Mediterranean Sea, and eventually the sailors become suspicious that they might actually be approaching land, and so they begin to check the depth of the water, and then they get afraid because they are approaching shallow water. Being driven along at night into shallow water is extremely dangerous. And so they throw out anchors to try to stop the ship and they pray like crazy for daylight. And then they realize, you know, let's just leave these schmucks to their fate. We've got a boat. We know how to use it. We're coming up on shallow water. Now, to get in that boat in the middle of the open sea would have been suicidal, but now as we're approaching shallow water, it's actually safer. We can handle it better. It draws less. This is a good idea. Let's get in the boat and save ourselves. I know Paul said about how we're all going to be saved and how we've got to run aground. Let's do it ourselves this way. Paul realizes what they're doing, alerts the centurion and says, if they don't stay in the boat, you cannot be saved. And so they cut away the ropes, keep them on board. They stay there. Well, then just before the sun comes up, Paul eats breakfast, gives thanks, praise to God, in hope and in courage. It says, men, eat. You're going to need your strength. And they see him responding to God in faith, and they themselves then are encouraged. And as the day dawns, they see the land. They attempt to run the ship in. The sailors prove their worth, and they run up the sail, and they free the rudder, and they're trying to take it in, but they run aground on a reef. And now the soldiers are going to kill all the prisoners because Roman law held that any prisoner who escapes, their guards are liable for the penalty. So to keep him from escaping, they're going to kill him. But the centurion wants to spare Paul, and so stops them. And they make their way to shore. Verse 44, last sentence. And so in this way, all of them were brought safely to land. That's the text. If you read it, it's, it's a fascinating chapter. It's a lot of action. You can kind of picture yourself in this tense situation. It's just like a lot of novels and books that are written. But why is it in the Bible? why is it in the Bible? Now, in some ways, it's here to explain how it is that Paul got from point A to point B, and you can't overlook something as as grand as this. But in another way, the very end of verse 44 tells us something, that it's not just about how Paul got from A to B, it's how these men got rescued. And so it is that they were all brought safely to land. There's something in how they were rescued we're supposed to see. Let me put it like this in a sentence. God's promises are meant to encourage us as well as motivate us to responsible action. God's promises are meant to encourage us. We're supposed to see what He says, see how He keeps His word, and be encouraged to find hope in that, and... Those same promises are supposed to drive us to responsible action, to embracing the promises and living in a way that actually brings them in. We're going to see that in this passage. I'm going to make two observations along this point. Promises encourage us and drive us to action. Begin with the encouragement part. Here's the first observation Take heart. God keeps all his promises. Take heart, that is, be encouraged. Don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. Why not? Because God keeps his promises. I make that observation from four statements in this passage. Verse 22, Paul speaks to the men, I urge you to take heart. Verse 24, God to Paul, don't be afraid. And then again, Paul to the men, so take heart. Three times in that paragraph. And then down in verse verse 36, after they've seen Paul heartened, they themselves are encouraged. The repetition here is pointing out a theme. Take heart, be encouraged. It's one of the things emphasized here. Well, why? Not because, hey, look around, the circumstances are great. Not, take heart, the circumstances have changed. They haven't. They're still in the middle of a storm. Even finally at the end, the very last one, verse 36, it's still in the dark before day has dawned. They cannot see the land yet. It's not take heart because the circumstances are good. There's something else. What is it? Obviously, it's take heart because of the promise of God. God has stepped in and God has spoken. Now, what he said is that he's going to change the circumstances, but they haven't been changed yet. So you're to take heart based on the nature of God's promise-making and promise-keeping. That's what should encourage you. He's promised, I'm going to step in and effect a change. Be encouraged right now. Not then, now. There's an important line there. It's not attached to the circumstance being changed. It's attached to the statement about the circumstance being changed. I've said something. Be encouraged. I keep promises. That's what God's doing here. And what did he say to Paul? Well, essentially, he said to Paul what he'd already said to him twice before. You're going to go to Rome. He said it in chapter 19, and chapter 23. You're going to go to Rome. He says the very same thing to him again. Why does he need to repeat this? Because Paul's afraid. He's looking out at his circumstances. He's going to die. Everybody's going to die. And God says, I've made a promise, and I keep promises. You must appear before Caesar. Take heart. He repeats to him, and then he tells the sailors. I believe God. You should too take heart. Now, obviously, the particular thing that he said to Paul here does not affect us directly. He has not promised any of us that we're going to Caesar, or going to see Rome, anything like that. So what does this mean for us? Well, It means that we are to look at promises and see in them God's nature and be encouraged. Well, what kind of promises? All of them. The scriptures are full of God's promises to you. Think down the list. Jesus promises that when we pray in His name, God will respond and answer. It's a promise. Jesus promises that He will grow us up in Christ's likeness, sanctify us. It's a promise. You're not going to struggle with the same sins forever. You will be grown. The Bible promises us that He meets the needs of His people. He provides for His children. It's a promise. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. That's a promise. And on and on. Promises. That when you look at those promises amidst a particular trial in life, You're supposed to think, God made this promise. I can have courage because God keeps His promises and this reality will happen. He will hear an answer. He will grow me. He will protect me from too much temptation. He will provide for my needs. Therefore, I can be encouraged right now, even though I don't see the provision at the moment. Even though I'm sorely tempted at the moment. All those promises... But we have to say, the chief among them, chief among all those promises, and the thing that makes all those promises true for you, if you're a Christian, is the promise to take you safely home. To bring you into His presence now and in the future. It's not a promise to remove you from trial. It's a promise to take you through trial into His presence. What I have in mind here is Acts 14.22. Paul told the churches, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And there's that must again. The must of divine necessity. It must be. It is this way. Not that you won't have trial and tribulation, but that through many trials and tribulations, you will enter the kingdom. Christian, He has made a place for you. As He said in John, He's gone ahead to prepare a place for you. He will come and get you. You will enter into the kingdom. Obviously, in in some sense, you already have entered into the kingdom. talked about this last week. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Colossians 1 says that. We talked about it last week in comparing the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. In a real way, you are already in the kingdom. But now we still face trial and tribulation. Why? Because the kingdom has not fully come. The fullness of His reign over all this earth is obviously not here yet. So we're in the kingdom, but we're not yet fully in the kingdom. And He has promised you, I will bring you fully into my reign. I will. It must be. And so here now we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and God promises that day is coming. I will bring it. Take heart. So you stand here. Look at this chapter metaphorically for a minute. You stand here in the midst of a great big storm. What's God's promise to you? I will deliver you. Take it to the bank and take heart. And because I've promised to do that, I have made you my child, and so all these other promises about my provision for you, my hearing of your prayer, my sanctifying you, my protecting you from failing in sin, all those other promises are true too because of the big one about my saving of you. You stand before God as an object of His grace. If you're a Christian, you stand before God as an object of His grace. No longer an object of His wrath. Which means that all of His attitude towards you is yes. All of His attitude towards you is blessing, even amidst storms. Sometimes that blessing means that He answers your prayers and removes the storms. Sometimes He brings the storms. Either way, He's for you. We are meant to look at the promises of God and realize because of what's happened at the cross, God is for me and will deliver me. Be encouraged. You know all this. You know all this. And Paul knew that he was going to Rome. But when he looked at the storm, he needed to be reminded. That's the same with us. You know this, but in the midst of a storm, be reminded. He stands by your side to save you. Take heart. That's the first thing that we see in this passage about God and his work in the world, his promises. He makes promises and He keeps them. So we are to be encouraged by that. There's more that needs to be said. The manner in which God brings His promises to pass, the way that He actualizes them, is important for us to think about here. It shows up in this passage. We are are to see promises and not... There's a danger for us is that we forget the promises and we think we're lost and we fear. Or we move a step beyond that and the next danger we step into is, oh good, God's promised. God will bring us through, great. So I can sit back and do nothing. He's going to take care of it all. That's not true. The promises of God not only are meant to encourage us, but are meant to motivate us to responsible action. So here's the second point. Take heed. God's providential promise-keeping involves you. His providential promise-keeping involves you, not just as a recipient of the promise, but as an actor within it. Let's see where this comes from in the text. Verses 44, the very last sentence, and also verse 1 of the next chapter. Say a very similar thing. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Then verse 1 of the next chapter, we were brought safely through. Those are passive statements. Who brought them through? Well, in the Bible, to ask that question is to answer it. God did. And so it was that God brought us safely through. This is the work of God. But how did it happen? Well, from 27 on, after God spoke to Paul... The rest of it is all just entirely normal human behavior. You could, you could write the rest of the story in a secular history book. Sailors, through their skills, learning, or beginning to get suspicious that they're approaching land, and so they take the fathoming of the, of the depth of the water, and they realize it's getting shallow, and so they want to save themselves. And this, then Paul detects their plan and realizes we need their skills on board if we're going to run aground safely. Warns the centurion. The centurion, in fear for his own life, realizes this is a problem. If they get away, they cut away the boats, etc., etc. It's all entirely normal. And that's how God safely delivered us to land. says that twice. So, in just the telling of the story, we see that God made a promise to deliver them to the land... And God brought that promise about through the entirely normal human activities of sailors and an apostle and Roman soldiers, etc. That's the providence of God. Showing up again here, we saw it a couple chapters ago the providence of God. God's providence is his working through natural agents to bring about his purposes. Natural agents like weather or people. The weather. God steers the weather patterns so that their ship literally runs into Malta. There's nothing a hundred miles north of Malta nor a hundred miles south of Malta nor for several hundred miles before or after it. But their boat, what do you know, runs right into this island all by itself. That's God at work through the natural agencies of wind and waves, and through people who take actions that we see there. It's the providence of God. And we're meant to see this and say, praise God for his wisdom. How he can work out all this complicated plan, for his power, that he can control all these various details, for his It's incredible creation that lets people function with a human freedom that is entirely compatible with His divine sovereignty. Nobody here has any clue whatsoever that they're functioning like a robot. I don't know why I'm letting this boat down into the water, but I am. That's not not going on. They're all people making plans and responding to other people's actions. There's no robotic action here. There's no minute mind control. And yet it all is under the sovereignty of God. That's providence. We're meant to see that and praise God for it. Because it's true in all of our lives, all of the time. You sit down and you make a decision as to where you're going to go for lunch. That's in God's providence. He's going to accomplish something through that. Every detail of your life is under his providence. We're to, we're to praise God for that. But here's the different thing in this passage. is that we're not just supposed to praise God for it. We're supposed to act. And that particular emphasis here comes up in a what is perhaps a confusing double talk from Paul. I don't know if you caught this when you read through. But you look at verses 22 to 25, and what does Paul say about the salvation of everybody here? Going to happen. For sure. Promised by God, who always does what he says. I must go to Rome. He said he's granted me all these souls here on this boat, and we must run aground. That's going to happen. And then... Down in verse 31, he says to the centurion, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. That's kind of odd. What, what do you make of that? Many of us, if we were the centurion, would reply, Oh, no, 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 Paul, you're mistaken. You have forgotten what you just told us up in verses 22 to 25. God promised to save all of us, He did. Can't not be saved then. Doesn't matter what I do. I can go to sleep over here. I can run up the sail. I can start shooting holes in the bottom of the boat. Doesn't matter what I do. God promised to save us. It's irrelevant my behavior, to which Paul says, "Uh, uh-uh, no." Because Paul, not God, not only promised the end. God is a God of the ends and of the means. You must run aground on an island. And Joshua would shout down from heaven, he promised us the land too and said we must go into it and walk in it. He promised us he'd part the, the, the uh, river too, and we must put our feet in it. And not until we act will he deliver his promise. Follow that. That's a little bit confusing, perhaps. Some of us might be thinking, well, then, could God's promise be false then? I mean, could could it be falsified? Could he fail to deliver us? Could he fail to bring Paul to Rome? Could he have failed to give them the promised land? This is kind of odd. When you begin to struggle with that, you're misunderstanding how warnings work. Warnings like the one that Paul issues here, are delivered by God on the basis of a possible outcome, an imaginable outcome, not based on what will actually happen or on a probable outcome. Think, for example, of blue-staking your yard. You know, blue-staking is when you... You mark out where the gas line is and potentially any underground power lines before you dig a hole. Well, the, the gas company, the power company, they put, they put ads on the television. Um, I don't know if it's around here, but where I came from, it was called Julie. Because I think Julie was the letters for the number you call or something like that. They just put out this broad blanket warning because conceivably in their minds, if you dig a hole and you hit a gas line, you'll have a problem. They do not broadcast that warning only onto the televisions of people who are about to dig six-foot-deep holes right on top of their gas lines. They couldn't do that. That, That's ludicrous. So they just say it generically. If you puncture your gas line, you will explode. (laughs) So ask us to blue stake your yard. We'll be more than happy to. Now, if I was only going to dig a four-foot hole over there somewhere, not anywhere near my gas line, I'm in no danger at all. We can't be this detailed, though, in, in these kinds of broad warnings. They're just making us aware of the potential possibility for danger. And that connects, in my mind, to a realization and a fear because how God made me to want to yearn for self-preservation And so the warning connects with God's design of me, and I think, you know, blue lines on my grass would be a good idea. Oh, look, I wasn't in any danger after all. It's good to know, though. But it might be the case that somebody would get a blue line painted on their yard and think, wow, that's right where I was going to put the swimming pool. That's a problem. Thank goodness the warning saved me. That's how the gas company works, that's how God works. God issues warnings to us that then connect to our natural God-designed human desire for self-preservation. And the warning and my nature then move me towards God's desired end. Without sailors on the boat, they can't run aground safely. They might crash into the side of a cliff or something. But the sailors are the ones who can steer the ship. They need sailors. And God tells a centurion through Paul, you need sailors. And the centurion says, yes, good idea. Keeps them on board. And what do you know? Just like God intended. And God didn't have to manipulate anybody's minds to do that. The sailors themselves with their own desire for self-preservation, think, I'm going to hop in this little boat. Paul's desire for self-preservation, the centurion's desire for self-preservation, keep them. And God's promise is fulfilled. I'm going to save you all by running you aground on this island. And I'm going to run you aground on this island by warning you about the opposite consequences. You follow that? There's... There's a lot of philosophy in that, a lot of theology in that. If you want to talk more about that, we can. But what's the bottom line for us? The bottom line for us is we cannot have the response to the promise that drives us to passivity. Hey, you promised to deliver God? I don't have to do anything about that then. God doesn't work that way. He does not issue promises apart from means. He does not only talk about ends, He ordains means. He promises, if you pray in Jesus' name, I will hear you and answer. And then he warns us, the reason that you do not have is that you do not ask, or you ask for wrong motives. Book of James. Trying to drive us to ask in right motives so that he can hear an answer. He promises, I will sanctify you. Romans 8:29. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what God's doing, conforming you to the image of Christ. And he says, prayer of Jesus sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The promise sanctification comes from the word you cannot be sanctified by avoiding the bible he promises i have elected my people i will save them and then he says how in the world can they be how in the world can they believe if no one ever preaches to them we have to preach to them as paul said to endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may come to christ and finally, at the end, the biggest promise of all, he says, I will take you into my kingdom. For sure, promised. And Jesus says, those who endure to the end shall be saved. The book of Hebrews warns us repeatedly, do not turn away. There are no unbelievers in heaven. None. There are no Muslims in heaven. None. Etc., etc. So don't turn away, but instead grab hold of the promise of God. Grab hold of the means of grace by which He grows you. Dive into the scriptures and say, I need this word to change me and grow me up. Christ is my only hope. I hold tight to Him. I don't let Him go and wander off into the darkness, trusting that, you know, I prayed a prayer back in 1978. I think I'm good to go. More people than you know think like that. Still talking the lingo, but frankly, not trusting in any evidence of salvation today. No fruit visible in their life for decades. But a memory from a Billy Graham crusade 30 years ago. There are no unbelievers in heaven. You must believe to the end persevere, persevere, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, for it is God who is at work in you. This is not apart from grace. God is at work in you. But you have a role. And passivity isn't it. God makes promises so that you will look at them and say, oh, thank God I know what He's doing and I know He's for me and I know He will deliver. And He makes promises so that you will say, there's the goal, I'm going to go grab it because it is so good and so important to me and so vital and so necessary that I dare not let it pass by. So I will strive I will press on to reach the goal for which Christ has called me heavenward. The word's Paul. He never says, you're good to go, sit back, don't worry about it. He tells you in a promise of the end and of the means to that end. And so it is that all of His people are brought safely to shore. Let me pray. Father, I know that in talking about how You work in providence and in talking about promises and responsibility, I know that I, even for myself, am swimming in deep water. And I imagine that for some who have heard these things, it's deep water for them too. And so I pray you would put our feet on some solid ground, and even if the water's up to our neck, that you would allow us to stand and to trust you and to sort through these things. God, I look at this chapter, and I'm encouraged by your promise to deliver, and I'm challenged by your call to walk into the deliverance. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here too, that that would be what sits on them, an encouragement and a challenge. And for those here, Lord, who are not yet trusting in Christ, to show them that the promises can be theirs too, if they will embrace the means to that end, faith in the crucified Christ. Lord, open their eyes, I pray. Open each of us, open each of our eyes. We may see you and trust you and step out into your promises. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah.